Thank you, Matt. Thank you, praise team. Good worship today. There's a few people who enjoyed that, Matt. That's great. Awesome. Yes, right. We did it for God. Good point. Yeah. I am so ready for heaven. I am. I mean, I'm just serious. I mean, I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and we're preaching this morning. I am so ready for heaven. I long. I long for what God has in store for each of His children who believe Jesus Christ is their Savior and are headed for that eternity. I believe the next life, I believe this beyond a shadow of a doubt, the next life is going to be so wonderful. It is beyond my every imagination. There isn't a movie director who can capture it and put it on the screen. It's just, it's just out there, and it's, it's amazing. Yet, Yet I know there are some people, even in the church today, not necessarily Grace Chapel, of course, n- never here, but in other churches, who, who don't share my enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not as uh, wound up as, as I am about it. They, they think that heaven is going to be a long, boring time. I mean, anybody here like that? Like, do you dare put your hand up? Right, right. They aren't as anxious as I seem to be, and I think there are reasons why there are days that you and I can even have where we're like not that jazzed about the future. Um, have, you ever, have you ever been somewhere or in an experience and you've said, use these words, this is a slice of heaven. You've done things like that, and at that moment, you're just enthralled with the here and now, and everything is wonderful, and everything's happening great. That happens, like once a year, you'll, you'll get, that, get that feeling. Yeah. In the church, we sometimes immerse, well, not sometimes, we always want to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, right? This is where we go. That's why we're, what we're doing on Sunday. We immerse ourselves in the Word of God because it is the Word of life. This precious book contains the answers to our present condition of sin. And so it's imperative for you and I to understand from God's perspective, not books and movies and philosophers and even what other people are saying, but from God's perspective about how you and I then should live right now, in the here and now. But Scripture also prepares us at the very same time for eternal life. Um, eternal life is ours through our faith in Jesus Christ, our, our Savior. Eternal life is ours here and then, the here and now and the future. So it's interesting that a lot of teaching, a lot of sermons, a lot of our talk that we have with each other, um, it's interesting that we tend to compartmentalize eternity. The, you know, there's, there's this eternal life that we enjoy now, and then there's some distant future that's out there that, that we talk about every once in a while. And I think that causes us to spend not as much time as we should be studying what the Bible says about the full realization of our eternal life through Jesus Christ that's yet to be revealed and yet to be fulfilled. And we, when, when we neglect that, as we're prone to do because we get caught up in the here and now, when we neglect incorporating our future into our present, 
we miss the full and abundant life that Jesus Christ talks about and that He has died on the cross to provide for us in the here and now. Check it out. Our future eternity is the topic, the central theme, the focus subject of Scripture's last two chapters. That's a fact. Our eternal life in Jesus Christ is the lingering memory that God purposefully planned and wants you and I to have after we finished reading through the Bible. That's what we're left with. You know how you read your favorite book and the last chapter is what you remember? We often pay such a small percentage of our time and our attention to the place where you and I are going to live together with Jesus forever. Like, this is like a finger snap, this here and now. That's going to be the real deal. Also, I think there are some untrue myths regarding heaven that have sprung up um, as early as the Middle Ages, and they've distorted the true picture of heaven into something entirely unrecognizable today. Maybe some people around today um, still buy into this ancient fiction. Uh, there's books. There's a lot of movies. I'm amazed at how many movies deal with the topic of the afterlife and, and heaven and, and another dimension and all that stuff. And there's a lot of bad theology about heaven out there also. This clouded view that we are all susceptible to actually developed through significant church leaders over the centuries. Like, it's kind of the church's fault in, in many ways. You know, in the fifth century, one of the big granddaddies of the church, St. Augustine, you ever heard that name? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's more than just a city in Florida. Just one. <clears throat> but St. Augustine, he was a guy. And he described heaven as the city of God. So he's pretty accurate there. But he said it was filled with buildings and <clears throat> unclothed people as God originally created them who could marry and procreate. It was kind of like the same thing that's going on here a little bit. Um, rural people envisioned heaven as a natural place, kind of like the Garden of Eden. Urban people tended to see it as structured and a hierarchical place with castles and, and courts and people walking around in robes. Roman Catholicism sees Mary as the queen of heaven. And in all those images that I've just talked about and more, they're all in the paintings of some of the greatest artists of all time. And they're what we picture. They're what conjure up in our mind. Beginning in the 11th century, you had the Crusaders. And they believed that they would go to heaven as a reward for fighting and slaughtering people. Which to me sounds more like a, a Viking kind of Valhalla. Uh, in the 13th century, the theologian Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians of all time, he argued that heaven was not an earthly paradise at all, but rather this abstract communion with God filled with light and knowledge. And thus the boredom references began. <laughs> and over time, a concept of a purgatory developed between heaven and earth between earth and heaven. And it was added into Roman Catholicism so that the majority of us could eventually reach heaven. Dante, have you ever heard of Dante? Great 
Italian poet. He wrote Dante's Inferno that had people screeching in, in terror because of hell. And he gave a, vi- a vivid poem about heaven also, which doesn't get as much press. And he see, saw it as more of a stadium filled with people, and God is in the center, and He's this divine, brilliant light, and you had angels swirling around. And unfortunately, uh, he believed that how close you could approach God in heaven depended on your capacity for love and joy, not as we believe through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And then Milton. How many had to read Paradise Lost? I had to read it in, in, in high school. I mean, I had to and, and, and write a report. Um, but he gave us another picture of heaven and hell. So you got all this stuff about heaven and hell. And so what about angels? What about wings? What about harps? What about an unlimited food buffet where you can never gain weight? I got some of your attention now. I know I do. I got, I got you. I'm reeling you in. Do you really want to sit on a cloud and play a harp? Some of you are like, actually today, Pete, <laughs> it doesn't sound that bad. Uh, for how long? Forever? In an age where people try to make doctrines more appealing, the, the, the truths, the doctrines, the teachings of Scripture, they try to jazz them up, and they do it by ignoring or even at times twisting what the actual biblical truth is. Here's the irony of all that. When you actually take Scripture for what it says, which we're going to do over the next two weeks, you'll discover that the actual true biblical doctrine of heaven is far more attractive than the dull view of the afterlife that has developed in the church over the last 2,000 years. So the Bible, as always, is where we go, and it always helps clear away whatever cobwebs we might have in our brains. So over the next two weeks, starting today, we're going to examine what God says and read the biblical reasons why heaven is not boring at all. First reason, Jesus is going to be there. Okay, can we go home now? Are we good? Okay, Matt, you want to come up? Jesus is going to be there. John 14, 3, his own words to his disciples and to you and I. If I go, and he did, and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has promised to return. It could be today. I pray it is today. There's nothing I have left to do now that I am a child of God. And upon his return, he's going to receive, he said, his followers unto himself. So wherever heaven is, I'm going to be there with him, right? So that's a good start. And where might that wherever place be? Well, speaking about a new created Jerusalem, John tells us in the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, he says, no longer, speaking of the city, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and who? Of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Say His name. Jesus. 
will be in it, in that city. And his servants, is that you? By faith in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your sin? And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? Your name will be on his forehead. It's the name on the forehead, I believe, is a deliberate slam against the identity mark on the forehead that Antichrist in the previous chapters of Revelation required during the Great Tribulation period, uh, the, the period of judgment on the people and this planet. Jesus will be there, and we will be there identified with his name. We could begin, as I said here, and end here and be done. Isn't this enough? However, God has left us so much more, and I've got time to fill. No, that's not. God has left us so much more. He's, we're also told that it's going to be a heaven on earth. So we're going to disrupt all the ideas of us going to heaven and staying there for eternity. It's going to be a heaven on earth, or as it's described by John, as I just said, a new Jerusalem. After the final judgment, after the tribulation period, Satan is in the lake of fire, all right? We, sinners, unrepentant sinners who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior do not go to hell. Well, they do, but they end up in the lake of fire with Satan. And that's a horrid fact that you and I need to digest right now, that those who reject salvation through Jesus Christ are with him in the lake of fire. But after that, Judgment. God is going to remake the universe, both heaven and hell, I mean, and, and, and earth. And God will then relocate this new heaven to the new earth. It's, it's, it's wild. And he will live with his people. It's right here in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God's ultimate plan is not to take you and I to be with him in his place when we die. That's not the ultimate plan. It does presently happen, according to Scripture, at a believer's death until Jesus Christ comes back and he brings all the dead in Christ back with him at his return. God's ultimate eternal plan is rather to come down after our bodily resurrections and he's going to live with us forever in the new heaven on the new earth from Jerusalem, the new holy city. Second Peter and First Peter, Peter talks about it a lot. In, in Second Peter 3, 7, he said, by the same word which with, God, with which God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. All the stuff we're knocking ourselves out to do on this planet burns. 
being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he said, but this day, this day of the Lord that we're all longing for will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, all the galaxies in the universe, will be burned up and dissolved. Who can do that? God. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You could say that you're in my destiny as followers of Jesus Christ is a resurrected life on a resurrected heaven and earth. <laughs> now, there's also going to be a river, okay? So those of you who like rivers, here you go. There's going to be a river, and it's described as the water of life. Have you heard that phrase before? And there was going to be God in this city and God the Son sitting on their thrones. And there's going to be something called the tree of life. Have you heard that phrase before? Revelation 21, 22, verse 1. Then the angel, this is John speaking, showed me the river of the water of life. It's bright as crystal. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of that city. This new Jerusalem. And by the way, we're talking about next week. It is really, really big. You remember when Jesus, in John chapter 4, was talking to a woman at the well? You remember that? that that's a very well-known story of, of Christ's encounter with a woman who needed salvation. And he offered her what? What kind of water? Living water. Right, right to satisfy her thirst, and he told her it would satisfy her thirst, how long? Forever, right. And Jesus said to her, this is uh, verse 13 of John 4, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the, the well water, this normal water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him, will become in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then uh, three chapters later, in John chapter 7, Jesus tells the people, whoever believes in me, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as, <clears throat> as the Scripture has said, and he quotes from uh, places that have this recorded in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, <clears throat> as Scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now, listen to this. Now this, he said about the Spirit, this river of living eternal water. He said this about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, which you and I, as followers in Jesus Christ, have received. For as yet the Spirit had not been given at this moment in time because Jesus was not yet glorified. In this new heaven on earth, in our new eternal resurrected bodies, please bring it today, we won't need the indwelling Holy Spirit of God as we have Him now flowing out of us. Everything we do is because of that power and because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Everything that is good comes down to us from the Father of lights. 
We won't need Him flowing out of, out, of, out of us as we do today. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is right now actively working in your life and in my life. He's a guarantee. He's, a, he's, a seal, he's sealing us, uh, setting us apart. He's a promise to us until we are redeemed, until we do receive our inheritance, which are part of that is our resurrected bodies and this new Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit, according to John 7, by Jesus Christ's own lips, is the flowing, living water for us in this present life. He is who we so desperately depend on as we wait for Jesus to return. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul told the believers in that church, in Him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Do you remember that day? Do you remember when God reached down and saved you? Well, He said, and when you believed in Him, when you put your faith and trust in Him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, at that moment, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and the glory of God. And then later in the end of that chapter in a book in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 30, Paul says, and do not grieve that Holy Spirit of God. Don't do that. By whom you were, what? Sealed for the day of redemption. This is our current reality that Holy Spirit, that living water flowing out of us. So let's go back and continue in our future reality. Back to Revelation 22, finish off uh, verse uh, 2. So also, you got the river. Also, on either side of that river, the tree of life, there it is, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I don't know. That's not boring, I like fruit. Do you like fruit? Okay, this is, this is fruit from the tree of life. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a fruit of the month club subscription forever. All right? Which begs the question, which we'll talk a little bit about more next week, will we eat food in this new heaven on earth? Why is there fruit? if you don't eat it. I don't know. We'll talk about that next week. Do you remember the garden? The Garden of Eden? And there was that angel at the end of uh, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from that garden to never come back in their lifetime. Uh, and there was that tree of life in the garden. It's in Genesis 3. Let me just read it for you. Start in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, this is after cursing the world, cursing the planet, pronouncing the judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. How so? In knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from that other tree, he did the knowledge of good and evil, lest he reaches out his hand and takes from the other tree, the tree of life, and eat and live forever in that state. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. How ironic our, our destiny we work the ground from which we were created. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, which people have been looking for, explorers have looked for forever and ever and ever and ever, 
He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why would you want to find it and have to go through that, which, of course, you're not going to go through? In the new heaven on earth, the tree is back. It was in the very first chapter. It's in the last chapter. And the guard this time has been removed. And you and I have eternal access. It's, are you bored? I mean, seriously, are you bored? I dare you to be bored. It's back to Revelation 22, verse 2. And what is, how does that verse end? Verse, verse 2. The leaves of that tree, forget about the fruit. The leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Oh, my what does our world need now? Today, the cry of the nations of our world is for healing. It's for unity. It's for justice. It's for everything to be made right. Can't we all just get along? But we desperately want healing for this planet's fracture. But here's the problem. Everybody has their own opinion of what that looks like. Everybody, even in here, we've got dozens and dozens of opinions. What would that look like? How would we get there? What, what do we need to do to get there? What kinds of laws do we need to create to get there? Well, one day, and I'm of the opinion that it could be very soon, Antichrist will dominate all the opinions with his own. And it's only for seven years, thank God. But God's opinion is the only one that matters. And God's will will be done in the new heaven. Don't you long for what God has prepared for us? Is that boring? In that day, we're told we're going to be God's servants and we'll worship Him. Similar to what we've done in our doing here this morning, but like in a way we can't even describe. Uh, verse 3 of 22 of Revelation, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And we're going to serve and we're going to worship, but there will be some things that are not there in, our, in this heaven that we are describing. There's not going to be any old earth. This planet is gone. There's not going to be any sea, which is really interesting, I think. Remember in the beginning, like the real beginning, like the creation beginning back in Genesis, God separated what? The land from the sea, right? Out of the chaotic mess that was before him, he, went, he did his thing and he had land and you had sea. And in Revelation 21:1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There's no more despair. There's no more death. There's no more mourning. Verse 4 of 21, He will wipe away every tear, which is a poetic way of saying there aren't going to be any tears. It's not like we're going to cry and God's going to come and wipe your tear. It's, it's, it's a poetic way of saying no need to cry. Neither shall there be, uh, no, uh, death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the, all the former stuff is gone. It's all gone. There's going to be no sin. Huh. 
and there's not going to be any unrepentant sinners. Revelation 21.8 says, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Some of you are going, whoa. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And in verse 27 of 21, but nothing unclean will ever enter it by God's decree, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. It's only going to be truth and justice. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in Jesus Christ's book as a follower of Him? Revelation 23, 1 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. We also read in, in these last two chapters that there's, there's no temples, there's, there's no, you know, not the holy temple, not needed anymore. There's no threats from the outside. We have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. There's not going to be any night, and there's not going to be any sun, S-U-N, Interesting, both of which were parts of the initial creation. Remember that? Of our planet. God separated the light from the dark. And in Revelation 22, 5, it says, the night will be no more. No more night. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Do you remember in creation God not only separated the, the land from the sea and the uh, light from the darkness, but when did he separate the light from the darkness? You remember what day? Day one. On what day did he create the sun? Day four. So there was another light before the sun that did the whole day thing. In Revelation 21, 22 to 26 says, And I saw no temple in the city, because its temple is the Lord God. He's here. And the Almighty, the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. This is like beyond expressible. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, which is 24 hours, if there are hours. And there will be no night there. So the gates being open is what? What's that a symbolic sign of? No threat. Nothing to worry about. Complete peace. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And that's, this has been a really quick overview, I get it, of some of the fantastic scenes that we will experience every moment in an indescribable, eternal moment. But I know one of the biggest questions on people's minds is, that's amazing, but well, I recognize those who I knew in this life. <laughs> it's what everybody wants to know. It's the one question I always get. Why? Because our heads, mine included, 
are still in this present reality, isn't it? Um, it's, it's full of all of our worries. It's full of all of our concerns. What's important to us? What we, we, we are so attached to this world and the people we love. There's nothing wrong with that. Wives want to know. Grandchildren want to know. But none of us in this room can really explain, express, or fully comprehend what our new eternally minded bodies will see and know and actually care about regarding this past life. Here's a little bit about what we do know about the day from the Bible. As I've already said, we will see Jesus and we will know fully. This is how it, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. It's a, it's a fuzzy reflection. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's going to be an awareness that we don't even comprehend. And in 1 John 3, John the, the Apostle says in verses 1 to 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it doesn't know Him. So don't be surprised. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be one day has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone, every one of us in this room who knows him thus hopes in him and we purify ourselves as he is pure. It affects the way we live now, this future reality. And all I can say is with some confidence, a little confidence, that there seems to be the impression that you and I are going to be reunited with <clears throat> believing loved ones and all the family of God one day. I can say that pretty much with a certainty. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 13 and 14, Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We want you to know about what's coming, about those who are asleep, those who uh, know Jesus Christ as their Savior and have passed on into the next life. We don't want you to grieve as others who don't have any hope, who don't know Christ. They, they don't know what's out there. They're just guessing. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's, they're coming back one day with Jesus. And it might be you and I if Jesus tarries a little bit longer and we pass along. So with that truth, I see that there is this possibility that we may also recognize each other in some manner, in some way, probably in a way that is far too wonderful for us to even comprehend with our present timeline-focused minds. We will have a God-graced understanding that we don't presently understand. It may be pushing it to say that we'll recognize our loved ones as we remember them now. 
I think that's pushing it. I mean, you can go ahead and believe that. I mean, you can still be a member at Grace Chapel. Um, no, it's fine. You know, it's fine. I, I, I just think that's pushing it to say we'll recognize them as we remember them now. But I know we'll recognize the resurrected Jesus Christ. So why not the recognize, rec- uh, re- resurrected grandma? I'm going to know Jesus. There's got to be a way in which I'm going to know my grandmother, who I'm looking forward to seeing, by the way. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 11, Many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to recognize those guys in their resurrected bodies. Why not everybody else in some way? Maybe our minds will be so transformed and opened up by the sheer grace of God that we'll recognize, for sure identify with, all the millions in the family of God who we never knew in this present world. Thousands and thousands of years worth of God's children all gathered together as one, united in Christ, overwhelmed by the glory of God that's just shining in front of us. We will then understand. We will then know, and I think we're just going to be so enthralled with the glory of God. All the other stuff we're talking about will probably just drift into the past and stay there. That's my thought. And I've only just scratched the surface this morning. I mean, we're just turned one page of a whole volume. Next week, we're going to take another look into God's Word and unwrap some more truths about heaven. In particular, we're going to talk about our eternal resurrected bodies, all that Scripture has to say about them. And we're going to even look at a little bit at these current afterlife experiences that so many books and YouTube videos are talking about. People died, gone to heaven, and come back. I promise you, you'll find it anything but boring. God provides us today as we rise and sing together, God provides us today with hope, love, faith, unity, purity, patience, forgiveness. All of it is on a day-to-day basis broken by us in our application in this life. We long for the day when it will be made right. We long for the day when it will be perfect. And it's coming in our eternity one day as we live for Him alone, as we wait for Him to come. Let's stand together right now and praise Him because we're going to be doing this a lot in eternity. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow before You as we stand and as we lift voices that are not just from our mouths, but it comes from our hearts hearts filled with your Holy Spirit under your control to express the inexpressible to you in words, how we love you, how we worship you, how we honor you. Thank you for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.